Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. are made between male and female, inclusive of, but not limited to, for example, uniforms, presentation, terminology, use of facilities and amenities, participation in sporting events and accommodation. Such distinctions will be applied on the basis of the individual's biological sex. The attached declaration asks parents to agree that any form of sexual immorality, including but not limited to adultery, fornication, homosexual acts, bisexual acts, bestiality, incest, pedophilia, and pornography is sinful and offensive to God and is destructive to human relationships and society. Principal Pastor Brian Mulhern emailed parents on Friday saying the school had included the new clauses in the enrollment contract to ensure that we retain our Christian ethos, which is the foundation of what has made the college what it is today. The contract's new clauses include the college having the right to exclude a student from the college for failing to adhere to the doctrinal precepts, including those as to biological sex. But in a statement, Mulhern said, City Point does not judge students on their sexuality or gender identity, and we would not make a decision on their enrollment in the college simply on that basis. City Point College is a private primary and high school in the Brisbane suburb of Carindale. It is one of four colleges within the Christian Outreach Centre movement, trading as International Network of Churches, INC, a small Pentecostal denomination. The college board is an advisory board responsible through the Committee of Management of City Point Church to the National Executive. And now Kim will give us some ACARA statistics on City Point. Thanks, Oliver. Um, so the enrolment figures are we have 1,711 students, 893 of which are boys and 818 girls. The ICSIA value is well above average, so we've got 1,131. Uh, the wealthiest of parents we've got are 59% of parents are in the wealthiest percentile. Then underneath that, the second level is 29%. 10% of parents are lower middle class and we have 2% of the disadvantaged category. So really a school with many advantaged students, but with 50% speaking a language other than English and no Indigenous students. Um, as far as the finances go, they've received recurrent grants from the Australian government of 10.3 million, from the Victorian government, 3.7 million, uh, fees and parental contributions make up 15.2 million and other pi- private contributions make up 1.1 million. 
So per pupil, that equals out to about $18,216. And the capital is $19.3 over three years. These figures do not take into account the myriad taxation expenditures or exemptions enjoyed by private schools in Australia. Before the principal of the school decided to discriminate against children on the basis of his peculiar view of Christianity, he should perhaps have considered the relationship of his school with the Australian state and its taxpayers. This relationship, in cool, hard financial terms, is running at more than half the recurrent and capital costs of this school. In fact, one could go so far as to say that without taxpayer funds, this school would have to close. Dogs believe that if religious institutions wish to be independent and private enough to discriminate against, who should be recipients of their services then? If they take public funds for the provision of those services, they should not have the right to discriminate against children, parents, teachers, or any other employees. Yes, so that's um, the dog's position. Uh, these people, because uh, they have a particular uh, religious viewpoint and they have every right to have that viewpoint, um, they think that they can then go ahead and discriminate against children and deprive them of an education. Now, one would have thought that a school was about educating children, not getting all hung up about matters of sexuality, but not so in this case. And a lot of people all around Australia feel very strongly about this and a petition was started and I think at last count it was over 75,000 uh, signatures and rising. So um, the dogs thought that they would bring that to your attention uh, because it's really of an in, uh, uh, deals with the issue of entanglement of church and state, as well as um, education. And uh, we as taxpayers got a very vital interest in what is going on. Because if this school can do it, and it has been being done for years by these private schools, uh, then um, anybody can do it. And there is discrimination legislation at the state level and there's discrimination legislation pending at the federal level, which these schools are particularly interested in because they want to continue to be able to discriminate on any grounds, religious or otherwise. Of course, the major um, discrimination is the fees, whether or not the parents can pay. And you can see that in this particular school's case, there's a lot of very wealthy parents and there's only 2% down the bottom, and none of them are Aboriginal students uh, that might have any kind of difficulty in paying for their education. Well, perhaps any, somebody else might wish to comment about this. What about you, Dale? What do you think about this situation? There's so much to say, but sadly to say, it's in Queensland and it does not surprise me. Being LGBTQIA+, in Queensland is difficult at the best of times, but as an adolescent, I can only imagine that the kind of discrimination the students already feel. And this is something that our government is perpetuating. It started to let young people know exactly what their government thought of them when, when the uh, same-sex marriage debate was put to everyone. Automatically, you feel othered. You feel like you are not uh, part of the society that the government wants to govern 
And uh, so as a, as a student, like I can only imagine just how damaging this can be. Um, also, they talk a lot about God-given uh, gender and and sexuality and stuff. And, you know, that doesn't take into to account the I in LGBTQIA+, which is intersex. People are born intersex, that is with male and female genitalia at birth, people are born intersex at the same rate, percentage-wise, as people with red hair. So this is a very, very common thing. And it's an arbitrary decision that's made by a doctor at birth as to whether to cut something off or sew something up and say whether or not you are a Johnny or a Jenny. And then later in life, so many people who were born intersex then go on to feel a gender dysphoria. For this person to suggest that God's given you this one or the other option flies in the face of the fact that for as long as human beings have been being born, they've been being born intersex. It just, there's just so many things wrong with this. I could go on and on about it, but I, I won't. What I will say is that by no means am I happy about the fact that my taxes go towards perpetuating their ability to discriminate along these lines. Can I just add something really quite cynically as well? Um, is the school may have put this up as a bit of a straw man uh, because there's nothing like free advertising. Mm. So if you out outrage the, the community and get a newspaper article, suddenly you'll attract all the people who want their children to go to that school just because of their bigotry. So it's almost like they're advertising through being a little bit outrageous, you know, oh, absolutely outrageous. There's no such yeah. thing as bad publicity. As That's uh, what I'm getting to, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, of course, um, not all not all Christian churches uh, would, would actually take the point of view that they're taking either or Christians because I would have thought that the Christian point of view was that all people were created equal, whatever they were whatever sex they might be, under God. We'll have a break and then Sol and Maddie are going to give us a very interesting article from the Eternity News, which I think is um, linked to the um, Anglican Church. We'll have a bit of a break for the moment. Kofias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and we hope you're still with us because uh, Sorrel and Maddie are going to read from, uh, from the revelations about City Point and Discrimination Bill, uh, which is in the Eternity News. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jean. Yet the revelations about City Point come when the Morrison Government Religious Discrimination Bill returns to Parliament. Attorney General Michaela Cash 
has held out against the moderate members of the Liberal Party who want to bring forward the revision of the Sex Discrimination Act's exemption, which allows schools to discriminate. More conservative schools have a lot riding on the religious discrimination bill. If a softer bill passes, they face the task of accepting students and staff that won't believe every aspect of the sponsoring church's doctrine while still maintaining the school's ethos. CityPoint's contract provides a working example of what might happen if Christian institutions hold a legal right to assert their theological beliefs to maintain the institution's religious ethos, regardless of whether it conflicts with the legal rights of other groups like LGBTQI plus people. The college's hard line undermines the insistence of some conservative Christian groups that schools have not and will not expel LGBTQI a plus students. The school's actions may decrease the chances of a religious discrimination bill in the current form being passed. It may parallel the example of some Christian aged care providers who argued in an earlier parliamentary inquiry that they should be allowed to keep LGBTQIA plus persons out of nursing homes. The government regulations were swiftly changed to take a non-discriminatory stance. Good. Yet, CityPoint's new contract has not only provided evidence of precisely the worst case scenario the bill's opponents have warned of, but also exposed the diverse range of beliefs on the issue held by the coalition of Christians calling for religious freedom. The college's actions have located the school at one extreme of a broad spectrum of views, as evidenced by recent submissions and statements to the parliamentary committees on the issue. Some churches and schools like City Point College evidently believe that making clear statements condemning same-sex relationships is a necessary part of being Christian. In a statement released defending the new contract, City Point's principal explained, we have always held these Christian beliefs and we have tried to be fair and transparent to everyone in our community by making them clear in the enrollment contract. We are seeking to maintain our Christian ethos and give parents and students the right to make an informed choice about whether they can support and embrace our approach to Christian education. And I'm gonna pass it over to you, Sorrel, to read the rest of this article. Thanks, Maddie. I'll continue this article. To the parents of students who openly identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, or queer, City Point has signaled it will not provide a welcoming environment. It is worth noting that some Christians have called for churches to adopt the type of approach that City Point has and make it clear what the church's theological position is on same-sex relationships. Groups such as Church Clarity in the United States argue it can be more hurtful for an LGBTQ plus person to be welcomed into a church community only to later realize it is not affirming. However, City Point is not a church, but a prep to grade 12 school. This is a salient distinction. City Point is one of the group of schools that thinks that the school community is a church. The debate over discrimination is whether that sort of school, which includes schools from other religious communities, should exist. And in the wider religious discrimination debate, progressives question whether a non-LGBTQI affirming school should exist. 
Similarly, for parents of kids who are intersex or experiencing gender dysphoria privately, the course ahead is fraught. City Point's view that Christianity requires those children to be shunned sends a clear message that their children will not be supported. Can a parent risk the mental health outcomes of immersing their child in such a community? City Point parents of same-sex attracted kids face the question of whether a non-affirming school can ever be a healthy environment for their child. This is a question just as relevant to the parents of same-sex attracted kids at the most respectful and welcoming of non-affirming schools. Yet it would be incorrect to assume that other non-affirming Christian schools wish to take a similar path to City Point. Religious schools vary a lot from schools that reflect the LGBTQ plus affirming stance of their sponsoring denomination to evangelical schools, which try to genuinely welcome all students to schools that blur the boundaries between being a church and a school like City Point. And while all these groups might theoretically support a religious discrimination act, each group would outwork their right to religious freedom differently within a school context. Those differences may well have a profound impact on the emotional and spiritual health of children who attend those schools, whether they are same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted. Perhaps even future Australians' openness to Christ and to Christians is on the line with this issue. Well, that's a very interesting article I, I find. I don't know about other people because it, it, it actually occurs in a Christian newspaper. And there is concern within the churches on this issue. You notice that there's great concern that a school is behaving as if it is a church, because this has real implications for Section 116 of the Constitution. In the Dogs High Court case in 1979, the um, religious schools, the last thing they wanted was in fact to be categorised as in any sense religious. They tried to, to prove that they were uh, no more religious than state schools. They wanted to draw a distinction between being an educational and a religious institution. So um, I find that a very interesting article indeed. But um, we'll have a bit more of a break. And then um, Jeff has got a very interesting uh, point of view here. Is this going to cause trouble? for the Religious Discrimination Bill currently before the Parliament in Canberra because Mr Morrison has got an awful lot on his plate at the moment. He's unpopular on a large number of fronts. Does he want to bite off this one as well? Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. you're still listening to the dogs program because Luke Beck over at Monash University has had something to say about all of this and uh, we'll leave that to Jeff. Over to you Jeff. 
Thanks very much, Gene. Look, this is from Luke Beck. He's Associate Professor of Constitutional Law at Monash. And uh, this is a, an article he appeared in on the 31st of January uh, in Lens, which is an online uh, forum for Monash University. It's called the Religious Discrimination Bill. Word games reveal culture war inside Australia's biggest churches. He, he starts, the Religious Dis Discrimination Bill plays word games to address hurt feelings rather than provide sensible protections against religious discrimination. In doing so, the bill exposes the culture war within Australia's biggest religious groups and runs into constitutional problems. After the mar marriage equality vote in 2017, he gives a history here, then PM Malcolm Turnbull offered Conservatives a religious freedom inquiry as a consolation prize. The inquiry found that Australia doesn't have a religious freedom problem, but that a federal law banning discrimination on the grounds of religion should be added to existing federal anti-discrimination laws. So this is kind of like a, uh, a consolation prize that, uh, this is me now, sorry, um, is that the Conservatives have offered the religion, religious leaders for the price of um, getting the marriage equality bill through. Uh, so Conservative religious leaders have hurt feelings, he says, Luke says. The proposal didn't really address the concerns of Conservative religious leaders. Conservative religious leaders have seen their cultural influence and social status wane in recent decades, having regularly been on the losing side of emotional political debates. No-fault divorce, same-sex adoption, marriage equality, abortion law reform, voluntary assisted dying, trans people updating birth certificates, banning so-called gay conversion therapy, uh, amongst those, conservative religious leaders are unhappy with modern Australia. So the Religious Discrimination Bill, now in its third version, tries to do two things at once. It tries to implement anti-discrimination protections whilst also trying to appease hurt feelings with a, an additional provisions that would allow more discrimination. He headlines, changing the meaning of words to appease hurt feelings. Well, take the overriding of existing federal, state and territory anti-discrimination laws to allow discriminatory statements of belief. The bill immunises religiously motivated comments, such as a boss telling a worker, women should not be in leadership roles, or a doctor telling a patient, disability is a punishment for sin from legal consequences. Rather than simply overriding state laws, the bill tries to change the definitions used in state laws. The Catholic Bishops Conference told the parliamentary inquiry looking into the bill that the current system of exemption, exemptions gives the wrong impression. It doesn't feel nice to be accused of discrimination. So the bill declares that henceforth, discriminatory statements of belief do not constitute discrimination. There's a constitutional problem here. While the federal parliament can sometimes override the operation of state laws, it cannot rewrite them. As the High Court has said, nor does the Parliament of the, of the Commonwealth have power directly to control the content of a state law. Appeasing hurt feelings is also the goal of the so-called preferencing provisions. These provisions say that religious bodies such as religious schools sorry, are immune from state and territory anti-discrimination laws when they give preference to people of the same religion in employment decisions. 
The Anglican Diocese of Sydney complains that allowing discriminatory employment policies by way of exemptions, as is the case currently on, in some states, is bad because it characterises religious bodies as discriminators. They say the language of preferencing is a virtue that flips the paradigm. The preferencing provisions are very broad and would allow discrimination preferencing against gay people and others. The Sydney Anglicans told the inquiry that only celibate gay Christians would be acceptable staff members. Having gay sex means that you do not adhere to the Sydney Anglican religious ethos and would not be a suitable teacher. There's a constitutional problem here too. The bill relies on the external affairs power, which allows parliament to pass laws implementing treaty obligations, such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Religious Freedom provision. But this bill isn't really implementing that treaty. It's breaking it by overriding existing human rights protections. The UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief has explained that it would be contrary to freedom of religion or belief provisions to allow one set of rights, for example, women's rights, to be undermined on the basis of claims made in defence of the right to freedom of religion. And he has a headline, Australia's biggest churches are internally divided. Conservative religious leaders don't always represent the views of their members. There's a culture war raging within the Catholic and Anglican churches, by far Australia's biggest churches. While Catholic leaders oppose abortion rights, the majority of ordinary Catholics support abortion rights. And while some Christian leaders were at the forefront of opposing marriage equality, a majority of ordinary Christians support marriage equality. Conservatives and moderates within the Catholic and Anglican churches are also facing off over the religious discrimination bill. The debate about the bill is a chance for each side to assert its dominance over the other. While the conservative Sydney Anglicans support the bill, the Anglican Church's Public Affairs Commission says it cannot support the bill in its current form. We believe that the religious discrimination bill still gives too much unnecessary scope and encouragement for harmful discriminatory behaviour in the name of religion in a manner that unfairly overrides the other equally important human rights to be free from discrimination, the Commission wrote. Catholics are also divided. While Catholic bishops officially support the bill, Catholic welfare agencies oppose the bill. Sacred Heart Mission says the bill will exclude people from access accessing essential services. And the St. Vincent de Paul Society says people will be hurt and will have no legal remedy. With serious constitutional defects and no consensus, even among religious groups, it's hard to see how the current religious discrimination bill can proceed. It's a recipe for ongoing community division, more discrimination and years of expensive legal wrangling. Yes, well, there you have it. Um, that, that is the dog's position that um, there should be no entanglement of religion with the state. And um, if we had won the case back in 1981, there'd be no need for any of this at all. Um, fortunately, we have public schools which are open to everyone. And we don't discuss or worry about any of these matters at all because in public schools, if everybody is to be accepted, then we don't need to have any hang-ups, do we? All children are equal in the public education system, and so they should be. And all teachers and parents and employees likewise. Um, it's no business of the uh, employers or the teachers 
to be interested in the private lives of others because a school is a public place and it is paid for with taxpayers' money. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with some facts and figures about the way these uh, so-called religious people are playing the job keeper system. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. You're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope. And now we're going up to Queensland. In, in, in the previous weeks, we've talked about how Victoria and New South Wales and South Australia gained the system with JobKeeper. Now Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools has done an article on what happened in Queensland. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, Trevor Cobalt's done some more fact-finding and found that the JobKeeper gravy train for Queensland private schools has been running. Uh, JobKeeper was a gravy train for many Queensland private schools. New financial statements published by the Charities Commission before Christmas show that 27 schools raked in $90 million in JobKeeper payments in 2020, contributing to profits of 100 million. Every school made a profit with JobKeeper and all except two increased their profits over the previous year. The top 10 schools exploiting JobKeeper got 53 million and made 63 million in profits. One of Queensland's most exclusive girls' school, St Hilda's on the Gold Coast, got $5.9 million and made a profit of $5 million. It also got $10.7 million in recurrent government funding. So nearly 60% of its students are from the top socio-educationally advantaged quartiles and nearly 90% are from the top two quartiles. And it has assets of $86 million. A.B. Patterson College, also on the Gold Coast, got $5.7 million from JobKeeper and made a profit of $7.4 million. It also got $14.4 million in recurrent government funding. Nearly 50% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 84% are from the top two quartiles. It has assets worth $56 million. Another highly exclusive school, the Catherine... Cathedral School of St Anne and St James in Townsville got $4.1 million and made a profit of $3.6 million. 
It also got 12.2 million in recurrent in recurrent government funding. Three quarters of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 94% are from the two top quartiles. It has assets of $83 million. As previously reported by the Career Mail, uh, Brisbane's most exclusive school, Brisbane Grammar, got a $3.2 million, got $3.2 million in JobKeeper payments and made a profit of $3.8 million. It also receives $11.4 million recurrent government funding, including $7.6 from the Commonwealth Government and $3.8 from the Queensland Government. Nearly 90% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 98% are from the top two quartiles. And its assets valued at nearly $200 million. Other highly privileged schools also receive job, millions in JobKeeper payments. Uh, for example, Southport School also on the Gold Coast got $4.8 million and made a profit of $11.8 million. Toowoomba Grammar got $4.1 million and made a profit of $3.8 million. Northside Christian College got $3.8 million and made a profit of $5.4 million. These schools also serve highly privileged families. Around 50 to 80% of their students are from the top SEA quartile and 80 to 90% are, or more are from the top two SEA quartiles. None of them, none of these schools, none of them really needed JobKeeper to stay afloat, did they? Not to stay afloat, but to make profit. And that is, I think that proves exactly what these schools are there to do. They, they have a business model and it's not around educating children. It is around making profit. So the profits made courtesy of JobKeeper enable these schools to increase their resources and expand their facilities for their privileged students. Two other schools are known to have received JobKeeper, but their financial statements lodged with the Charities Commission do not disclose the exact amount. Somerset College on the Gold Coast appears to have topped the list of JobKeeper payments, which are estimated at about $8 million or more. Its school principal stated that the school received JobKeeper. Uh, according to its annual financial report lodged with Charities Commission, it received a $9.1 million increase in government operating grants in 2020, but no details were provided. Well, this is really, uh, the greed of these really privileged schools is almost obscene, isn't it? According to, to Cobalt, you know, they grasp any opportunity to get their snouts in the taxpayer trough. Uh, well, if people are interested in this, uh, they can uh, find it on the Save Our Schools website. And uh, there's a lot of very interesting figures there indeed. Trevor does a great job. But remember, he's dealing with figures that are in the Charities Commission and the, uh, the figures from the systemic schools, which are the majority of private schools, don't go necessarily to the Charities Commission, only the so-called independent schools, most of whom are also corporations. So uh, it's the, the really big, wealthy uh, corporations uh, that you can find the uh, information about. The rest is pretty obscure. But we'll have a bit of a break and we come back and Sol is going to tell us about just how much it costs to put a child through school these days. There's nothing free about education in Australia, whether you send your child to a public school, 
particularly uh, a public school in a fairly wealthy area or a private school in Australia. And yet we are supposed to be talking about free, compulsory and secular education in Australia. It's none of those things at all. But we'll have a bit of break and Sorrel will tell us just about how much it really costs. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and Sorrel is going to tell you just how much it is. It, it costs if you have a child of five to put your child through a public or a private school in Australia. Thanks, Jean. So, yeah, the school costs have been described as breathtaking and they're putting parents under the pump. The soaring cost of education is seeing many Australian parents struggle as they plan for their children's future. Futurity Investment Group research released on Tuesday shows 39% of government and private schools are likely to increase fees this year. For Adelaide father of two, Paul, quickly piling costs are putting the private school plans he had for his children in jeopardy, even as his oldest child begins first grade at a private Catholic school this year. Paul said the school has increased their fees by about $300 last year and the family is currently paying about $3,000 for basic tuition costs. But their daughter's uniform costs an extra $800 this year and the family also needed to buy an iPad for her assignments. Paul expects to pay around $20,000 per year per child for private school tuition fees when his children reach high school and an extra $6,000 on top for other necessities such as uniforms, devices and excursions. But he doesn't expect that his or his wife's income combined will keep up with the cost of their children's schooling. We have to start saving up because we are not going to compromise on our kids' education, he said. We can compromise maybe our travel, maybe eating out and all those things, which are not that important, but the kids' education is the most important thing for us. If you're not in a high bracket income, sending your kid to any of those big schools is pretty hard and it's not for a normal person, he says. While you might think that public schools could be the answer to families getting priced out of private education, the cost of public education is climbing as well. The average going rate for 13 years of education at a private school in Australia starts at more than $100,000. But Futurity Investment Group data shows that government school fees are not far behind. A public school education in Sydney is the most expensive in the country, coming in at an average of 92375 overall. Although the average wage of an Australian working full-time has reached just under 96000 
Futurity Group executive Kate Hill said the cost of public education in cities like Sydney is quite breathtaking and parents' incomes are not going to be able to keep up. The cost of education is outstripping any wage growth to parents, Ms Hill said. So it is really becoming more and more of a struggle to find the funds to educate children. She said parents asking for more and more services is costing schools money, which has led to the cost of education increasing at double the rate of inflation, according to their research. But keeping students at home is not a get out of jail free card as families suffer the consequences of social isolation. Ms Hill said one of the services schools are spending more money on is mental health support. For Thornbury-based mother of three, Jacinta, the need for mental health support was extremely clear from the start of the pandemic in 2020. She had two children enrolled in a government school at the time, one of whom has since graduated. Both the children and Jacinta underwent counselling during the pandemic, and her youngest child, who is embarking on year 10 this year, struggled the most with the loss of daily in-person school interactions. For Jacinta, supporting her family's mental well-being added to the pressure trying to support their education. The children's teachers were left struggling to fill the gaps with remote learning, even as the school hired casual relief teachers to check in on students as well. Jacinta ended up shelling out an extra $90 per week on math tutoring for both of her children and $30 per week on guitar lessons for her youngest child to help him stay engaged with his learning. Her family wasn't alone in facing extra costs for learning at home. As Futurity Investment Group data shows, it costs an average of $1,856 on top of regular school fees for children to attend school from home in 2021. Whilst her family was able to pull through the past two years with their education and mental health cared for, Jacinta said she realises that not everyone is able to access the same services. She said the big equity gap, which is present even in state-funded education, was highlighted during the pandemic. Because I teach, I know that there were families that didn't have enough devices for the kids at home so that they had to share or that they didn't have good Wi-Fi, she says. I just kept saying to friends and family, what about the people that don't have the things that I do? How do they cope with this? Yes, what about them? How did they cope? How do they cope? Um, we're, we're talking about people here who think that they might be able to produce this 100000 but I would imagine that they also have to think about the mortgages because the mortgages are just so extraordinary um, at the moment. Um, and uh, there is this, this real, real lack of knowledge about the high levels of inequality and um, disadvantage in our, our community. The teachers know about it. And apparently homeschooling has increased a great deal. A lot of parents, because they're worried about COVID, are becoming more interested in homeschooling. But that's going to have um, a deleterious effect on the social development of their children and themselves, for that matter. Yeah, really show the cracks between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah, yeah. But it just goes to show how, in fact, we have to fight for public education being properly funded and for everyone so that all of our children get a chance to be their very best and have their opportunities in this country of ours. So we'll have a bit of a break and um, we'll come back to uh, 
find out what's going on in America. This is Hugo Race and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Subscribe now. had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're still listening to The Dogs program and uh, for a bit of relief, we're going to go overseas. Overseas to America with Jeff. Well, howdy, howdy, partners. How are you going there, Jean? Okay, we're in Virginia now, and we're we're on the Diana Ravitch's wonderful blog on education in America, and she's pointing out the differences between the um, mask mandate uh, schools and the schools which are defying mask mandates. In Virginia, more than half the school districts are defying what they call the Yunkin ban on mask mandates. Now, Yunkin is the governor in Virginia, and he's he suggested that uh, that that uh, masks should be optional, but the the schools are resisting his optional uh, suggestion. So this is from January 28th. Washington Post reports that more than half the school districts in Virginia are defying Governor Yunkin's order to eliminate mask mandates. Yunkin, a Republican, of course, boasted on a conservative radio program that only a small percentage of districts were not complying with his belief that masks should be optional. But a Washington Post analysis shows that the majority of Virginia public school districts enrolling more than two thirds of the state students have opted to disobey Yunkin's mask optional order. As of Wednesday, Two days after the order was supposed to take effect, 69 districts or 53% are still requiring masks for all students inside schools. Cumulatively, cumulatively those districts enrol 846,483 students or about 67% of the state's public school student population. The divide falls along partisan lines, although not perfectly. Almost every dist- district that opted to make masks optional is in a locality that voted for Yunkin in the 2021 gubernatorial election, being a Republican district in this case. The widespread defiance suggests that Yunkin will have enormous difficulty in enforcing his mask optional mandate, which is already the subject of two lawsuits, one from parents in Chesapeake, one from seven school boards that oversee some of the state's largest, most prominent school districts. A hearing on the second suit is scheduled next, for next week. Yunkin said that he will use every tool at his disposal to carry out his order as those cases wind through the court systems. And his spokeswoman did not rule out disciplining disobedient districts by yanking their state funding. This is a guy who's threatening schools with their funding if they fail to to, uh, implement his optional uh, mask mandates. 
uh, is madness. Frederick Hess, a senior fellow director of education policy at the right-leading American Enterprise Institute, said he thinks Youngkin should stay the course on his masking policies while vigorously fighting back against the two lawsuits challenging the executive order. If parents prioritise the health and safety of their children, they will tell them to wear a mask in school and wherever groups of people congregate. This is um, where health and politics you know, have, have, have become so emblematic of America, crazy stuff. It's become ideological, this health matter. Okay. Oh, um, Jean, I think I'll just nip over to England now. There's a new study on yeah. Diana Ravitch's uh, blog, and this is a new study finds parents in England dissatisfied by school choice, parents in Scotland pleased with their local schools, and it's reported in The Guardian in the UK uh, that so parents are unhappy with the past three decades of school choice. Uh, when we say school choice, that's being promoted, promoting private schools. By contrast, parents in Scotland are satisfied with their local public schools. Three decades of school choice in England has left parents feeling more cynical, fatalistic and disempowered than their peers in other parts of the UK, according to new research. A study comparing parents in England where families can name up to six state schools for their children to attend with those in Scotland where children are generally assigned to local state schools, found Scottish families were still more likely to be satisfied with the outcome. While 75% of parents in England said they had had enough of choices of schools, 76% of those in Scotland said the same, despite their lack of explicit choices within the admissions process. Parents in England were more likely to express frustration and disempowerment, with several calling their current school choice policies an illusion. In surveys and interviews conducted for the research published in the Journal of Social Policy, Avik Bhattacharya, the chief economist in the Social Market Foundation and author of the paper, said, this research adds to the growing evidence that school choice policies have failed to bring the benefits they were supposed to. For all the emphasis that policymakers in England have put on increasing choice, parents south of the border are no happier with their lot than their Scottish counterparts. Indeed, many are disenchanted and dismayed. These findings show that parents offered a range of options for their children's school are no happier than parents who have less choice about education. Well, I wish that our, our, our great and powerful Prime Minister and his Minister for Education would learn from this because they're still peddling choice in Australia and competition and so on. We want a good, well-funded public education that will educate all of our children together for a proper democracy. An interesting little fact is that when the Tories were dismantling their public libraries in, in the south of England to save public money, Scots didn't, just, did, didn't close one library, not one. They value pub, public education that highly, they wouldn't touch their public libraries. I'm just saying the Scots really value public education. Well, it all sort of started there, kind of, didn't it? Oh, well, the uh, Mechanics Institute um, started in Glasgow. Yeah, it was, um, and Lord Brown was very important uh, in introducing public education in England, and he came down from Ed Edinburgh. He took the low road to London. But uh, that's 19th century history. And yeah, we better wind it up now. almost <laughs> gone. Almost gone, and we're ready for our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
And this week's great state school is Swan Hill College. Congratulations, Swan Hill College. This is a principal's message from their website. Welcome to Swan Hill College. We are a rural secondary school situated near the majestic Murray River, 350 kilometers northwest of Melbourne. We have two campuses, the main campus with approximately 750 students from year seven to 12, and our Flow Campus, which is Flexible Learning Options Campus with 40 students. The college offers a broad range of VCE, VET and VCAL subjects for our students who are supported by 55 teaching and 40 support staff. At Swan Hill College, we are proud of the range of programs we run. We provide a great deal of literacy support to our students with extra staff allocated to build student capabilities in reading and writing. At year seven and eight, we have the STEPS program and additional literacy support for students who find literacy challenging. We also have a specific focus on reading with reading experts allocated to junior English classes to assist our students. In mathematics, we use a scaffolded numeracy program, and this is complemented by Maths Pathways, which is a software-based program which differentiates the work according to the student's level of ability. That's so awesome. In addition to these programs, a broad range of science, technology, physical education, humanities, art, music, drama, and food subjects cater for the range of students' interests. These subjects focus on engaging our students, providing them with a solid foundation from which to tackle years 11 and 12, and then their chosen pathway. Our Flow Campus is situated on the Kerrang side of the town and offers a blended learning program for students who have found mainstream education challenging. Our Flow students take part in a range of VCAL and VET subjects aimed at preparing them for life after secondary school. At Flow, our students learn a huge range of life skills, including cooking, numeracy, literacy and technology, and even run a coffee shop for the local community. At Swan Hill College, our staff work in professional learning communities. Our PLC groups focus on using high impact teaching strategies to engage our students in their learning. That's a great principal statement. I'm very impressed at how much they seem to be investing in their students for life after high school. It's kind of like real life, real life um, skills. So I'm gonna shoot some facts at you, numbers and facts from the Akara My School website. There is 740 students altogether and their ICSIA value is well below average at 949. Oh. Yeah, interesting. Um, 5% are in the upper quartile of parental income, which is quite low, actually. Uh -huh. And 15% in the second highest quartile. In the third quartile, there is below 50% to 30%. Uh -huh. And in the lowest, there is 25%. Um, there is 50%. Okay. So the lowest quartile is 50%, which... Yeah, it is a school with many disadvantaged students mm. and 5% speak a language other than English and 10% are Indigenous students. Yeah. Um, finances. Recurrent grants from the Australian government are 2.6 million. Victorian government, 10.1 million. Fees and contributions, 346,000 and other private contributions are 314,000. So per pupil, it costs $17,000 to send a student to this school. Their NAPLAN 
results are above average in reading, which is fantastic, uh, above average in both writing and numeracy. So good on you, Swan Hill College. You are doing the best with what you've got and you seem to be really supporting children and the future of our world. So thank you, Swan Hill College. Congratulations. You are our great state school of the week. Well, congratulations to Swan Hill. Your old alma mater, isn't it, uh, Jim? It is the old 1142, indeed, until it was taken over. My original place was taken over by the Catholic Church and we they moved and built a new school uh, further Very away. But it's the same yes. 1142 that I'm sure. Very good. Well, uh, that our time is gone. I'd like to thank Dale, who is our brilliant uh, manager on Zoom, and uh, Jeff and Sol and Maddie and Oliver and Kim for today's uh, production. And if you want to find out more about us, you can go to www.adogs.info. But for the moment, it's bye for now. I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I 